Howdy gamers, and welcome to another wonderful episode of this Accursed Podcast. I'm Layton. I'm just dropping in to shill our merch. We have some brand new Stay Safe Come Hard black metal hoodies, the same design on new, even softer shirts that we specifically picked out because the last ones get linty really easily, and it's important that you can wear the cum shirt and then take a little nap and not be covered in lint. Just designing with you in mind, all right? We also have beanies that say come on them. And I, I emphasize they do not actually have come on them. They just say that they do. We also have peaches and lemons heart pins, which are pretty cute. And peaches and lemons beanies, which will make you look cute. And I may be biased since I designed everything, but this merch will make people look at you and say, wow, you look amazing. What does your shirt say? And then, well, you're on your own. Also, there's a video version of this episode along with all of our video episodes and weekly mini-sodes at patreon.com slash night, which is also a great way to support the show so we can keep doing the show and get out of our court-mandated anger management sessions. Thank you. But I have to stop talking now because the episode is really, it, it's coming so fast right now. It is sprinting this way and oh my God, ah, it's coming right at you. Get out of the way. Here's the episode. Okay, so, hit us. Well, yeah, so what I wanted to share with, and I don't know how funny or embarrassing this will be, but there, <laughs> there's aspects. A few years ago, I was brought to a ninja sex party show by a friend of mine. Oh, really? Who was, like, visiting from out of town, and that's how I found you guys. But also, like, I knew of Aaron long ago for, like, really random reasons. Like, we both ended up making music on the internet right and and i don't know somehow cross paths just online but um yeah so i was at this show and also twerp was opening for you aaron right. was with you and i had just made friends with a person who was friends with twerp and gotcha. now i'm good buds with them we've collaborated but at the time right, it was right, just right. like i have this tenuous connection to twerp <laughs> and aaron follows me on twitter nice. like how much of a hot shot am i <laughs> <laughs> like hanging out with my friend at this show and we we stick around right till the end and we're like seeing if we can get backstage and maybe meet you guys. And I think it was probably like your manager was just like very friendly, like chatting with us and absolutely not letting us oh, pass. Oh, no. All that to say, I've been waiting a long time to hang out with you, Brian. Oh, man. And this is a dream come true. Wow. <laughs> well, I never assume anyone knows anything I've ever done, right? So I had no idea if you heard of NSP or anything. I knew you knew Twerp because mm. of the stuff you've done with them. And actually, I was texting with one of them. And I was like, we're having Andrew on the show tomorrow. And they were like, oh, awesome. So I knew you knew them, but I didn't know, you know since they're their own thing. I didn't know if you knew about the band, but it's yeah, amazing. No, I, mean, I think I found both of you guys right around that time. And yeah, I mean, it was a mind-blowing show. And um, yeah, I love awesome. what you're doing. Oh, thanks so much. Same with you. I mean, I'm a huge fan of your stuff. Yeah, we have been so stoked for the past three months to have you on. So this is <laughs> yeah. a thrill. Right, yeah. Sorry to keep you waiting. This was like my little payback, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's so hard for me. Actually, we were just talking. We had Steve Spahn on the show recently. And we were just talking with him about segmenting time and taking breaks. You know, I'm, I'm going to take off work or I'm going to do this other project and not do the other stuff. 
It is so mm-hmm. hard for me to do, and I have so much respect for people that can do it effectively. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure how effective I am at it, but I am starting to get more ruthless, definitely since having a kid, of just like being very protective of my time. And sometimes people yes. will be like, can we just have a 20-minute call? And I'm like, literally not until January. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. That's no, like that's how it's going to be. <laughs> I found the same thing. I'm curious if you had this too. I have an eight-year-old. And before I had a kid, it was just like, oh, do stuff kind of whenever, you know, like whatever. I'm in my, you know. 20s or whatever. And first of all, the first few months are just chaos and no one, you know, people barely survive. But then it's like, no, I actually am more productive because here's my window. I got to do it. And then I get home and I'm have to deal with a baby. Now, did you find that as well? It definitely focuses you. Yeah. I mean, I have cut out so much social media and actually just media in general, TV, video games, like all this kind of stuff that, uh, you know, is enjoyable, but ultimately just not the important stuff. And it really makes you use your time better because you just have so little of it. But (laughs) I mean, I used to be such a grass is always greener person. And I'm sure a lot of people relate to this where like when you're kind of more freelance or whatever, if you're working, you feel guilty that you're not taking time for yourself. But if you're taking time off, you feel guilty that you're not working more because you have no boundaries. And I found that this just flipped somehow when I had Evelyn and it was like, oh no, no matter what I'm doing right now, it's great. It's like, I'm doing work. That's awesome. Someone else is dealing with the baby or like I'm with my child who I love more than anything in the world. And this is also wonderful. So that's been a unanticipated, wonderful benefit. (laughs) Yeah. How old is Evelyn now? Just about 20 months in, in oh like a gosh. week. Oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah. So you are in it. Yeah. She's learning tons of words right now, That's which is really best. fun. Like she just got to like three to four word sentences, yes. you know, quote unquote. Yeah. It was really cool. I mean, the amount that she can understand and communicate for being that young is shocking to me. You know, it's my first kid. I, I don't know anything yeah. about how brains develop. It's amazing. When I look back now on videos of Audrey when she was about that age, I realize I'm hearing words that I wasn't hearing at the time, like these proto, you know, yeah. linguistic blobs that are are there. And when you're in it, you're like, oh, it's going on. There's a lot of things going on. But I find with some remove from these, like, basically not baby, but toddler videos, I'm like, whoa, she just said umbrella. What the fuck? That's, I didn't <laughs> even realize it at the time. So I was living in England when Audrey was born. And somehow this came across my radar where there was at one of the local universities, they were doing a speech study for babies, like a language acquisition study. And so I brought her, I think it was Kings, but I can't remember. Anyway, I brought her into this thing where they put like an electrode kind of helmet on her and then just recorded, you know, brainwaves as they played different sounds. And that was like, okay, fine. That was cool. But the best part was, I think it was every three months, they would send us a language survey, which is like, which of these behaviors is she doing? Is she, you know, putting two words together? Can she differentiate between this sound and that sound and and that sort of stuff? And so as you probably already know, but we'll come to know as Evelyn gets older, everything becomes a blur and the stuff that was super important. And, you know, you're like, oh, I'll remember this month from this month forever. Just that distinction totally fades away. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's happening so much already. (laughs) But I have this like record, you know, I could like plot, 
if I wanted her language acquisition because we signed up for this thing and then did these surveys for like two years. That's super cool. Wow. So what actually did they um, get from this electrode hat? Like, that's super interesting to me. I wish I just had one all the time to kind of- I know, right? <laughs> see what's happening as I'm doing various activities. Yeah, I would love to see that readout for me looking at any social media, just <laughs> yeah. how palpably know, right? stressed out is my brain right now. Well, I was kind of hoping they would do like an fMRI thing, which I know has various people like or don't like levels of that, since it's very hard, I think, to get signal from noise. Or maybe it's not very hard, but you have to know what you're doing. I think someone did a study where they like fMRI'd a corpse and found brain activity. So you have to like really be aware of it. That's the one where you have to be like perfectly still, right? Yeah. A thing babies love to do. <laughs> yes, right. But it was, you know, I didn't know exactly what they were doing. And I think they like to be kind of circumspect about it. But she was just sitting in this thing, like on my lap. It was very chill. But, you know, there's a recording going like, zh, ja, zh, ja, and like making different <laughs> sounds. I think to distinguish, there's this thing, I forget what it is. You might know this better than I do. You know, their brain starts kind of wide open to every possible phoneme. And then as they lock into a language, you know, their first language, they are less able to distinguish sounds from kind of outside that language. Oh, I haven't heard of that. Okay, yeah, that kind of makes sense. They strengthen certain kind of aspects of the sounds that are used the most in a language. Yeah, that's right. So like, for example, if a kid's first language is Japanese or whatever, after pretty early on, they lose the difference between the R and L mm-hmm. phoneme in English. But if their first language is English, I guess depending on what kind of English, they keep that distinction. And the same thing for, you know, tonal languages and all that other kind of stuff. Yeah, so it's, that's so interesting. I actually, I grew up with Mandarin as my first language. and then Oh, like, you did? Wow. You know, was so fluent at three years old and pretty yeah. much had forgotten it all by like six because I you know, <laughs> went to school in super white Ottawa. But it's a very different language, obviously, from English. And so right. it's uh, funny thinking about how differently that does develop. My dad is such a uh, proponent of counting in Chinese because I guess like every digit is one syllable and there's no weird like why do we do 12 and then 13 like it's a completely different (laughs) system for two numbers that are right next to each other anyway he he thinks it's like it's better for your brain to understand math like all this kind of stuff and yeah I kind of wonder if there's any truth to that First of all, I, well, two questions. I was lecturing in China for three weeks once, and the students that were very excited, they said counting in Chinese is better than English <laughs> for that reason. And they said Chinese can count to 10 on one hand. Oh, I haven't heard of that one. So it's just like a different finger count. You know, it's like one, two, three, four, five, and then six, seven. You know, it's like a different order. Interesting. Ah. I totally forget what they were talking about. You'd think I would have looked this up somewhere in the intervening, <laughs> like 10 years or something, but I haven't. And I was just curious offhand if you knew what that that was. Yeah, I actually haven't heard of that one. But it seems like that should be just a, a system that anybody could use. It seems like if it, they right? Have the hands. Yeah. <laughs> Cuz then you can get to <laughs> in principle 40, I guess. I just googled it and it seems like the switch from 5 to 6 is like that. That's so interesting. The thumb out? Thumb and pinky. Like hang loose. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then it goes to 7, then 8, 9, 10. Everybody listening knows what we're... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, my, my other question That's was going to be, so do, you, do you have perfect pitch? I don't, but I have really good relative pitch. Yeah. Give me the first note and I'll be pretty good for the rest of the quiz or whatever. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Same. what about you? 
I definitely do not have perfect pitch. Relative is solid. You know, I had to do enough like ear training and stuff in school that I can figure it out. You're both very smart music people. Can you explain what perfect pitch and relative pitch are to a pleb? Sure. Do you want to take this one? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Perfect pitch is much rarer and it's just when someone can identify the note being played like anytime out of context, wherever they could hear a car horn or a a phone ringing and be like, that's an F sharp. Yep. And then relative pitch is sort of like, if you know what one note is, you're able to extrapolate what any others mm-hmm. are because uh, you know, like the, the relationships yeah, between them, yeah. but uh, you couldn't just like out of the blue, if you heard something, identify it. Yeah. I- I'm curious okay. if you do this, if I hear relative notes, I can figure out what they are by the tension of where they sit in the scale. Do you do this? Like, so I'll hear a note and I'll be like, I know that's the fourth because it feels like it wants to resolve to the third. It's like kind of feeling where the note wants to go. I feel a bit like that with chords, the more complex ones too. You know, if there's like five notes happening at once, they wash over you, but you're like, I've felt that before and I'm pretty sure it's, it's this. With individual pitches, I think because I just had so much classical training with this, I almost learned it the way you learn like what colors are, you know, like uh, (laughs) seeing blue. It's almost as as fast as me as as, like hearing two notes at the same time and being able to tell how far apart they are, um, which is a really fun ability to have. (laughs) Oh, totally. I mean, the thing that's really amazing, too, is how learned a lot of it can be. You know, I certainly didn't start out with good relative pitch, I think. Mm-hmm. And then just after doing it for so many years and ear training and theory and all that stuff, it's like, oh, I can't believe I got better at this thing, which a lot of people would just be like, well, you got it or you don't. But that's just not true. It would be difficult to measure. I mean, maybe over time you could like plot how long it takes you to correctly identify something or whatever. But like, yeah, it's one of those things you don't always think of as a skill, but that, yeah, absolutely can be developed like anything else. There are a bunch of like pitch training apps that I've tried in the past that really just did a number on my self-esteem and I did not stick with them long enough to improve. Yeah. So I'm, I'm 47 and when I was in college, the internet was just in its early phases. I remember we had ear training partners. So we couldn't just go on a, you know, a site and have it like play chords and figure out what they were. Our theory professors would be like, okay, find a partner and then go do ear training. Would that be like you are just picking random intervals for each other? and Depending on what we were working on. So either it was, you know, identify the chord and the inversion or transcribe a melody, you know. I'm sure you did the same thing as you go up. You're transcribing more and more complicated things. Right, yeah. It started out with just intervals and, and that sort of thing. I've always found that stuff really fun. Yeah, <laughs> I actually went to a music camp one or two years, like a music summer camp. And like, oh, we would nice. just do that all day. And I was living my best life. Um, <laughs> so, you know, so nerdy. For some reason though, I was always worse at the rhythm ones. Like you'd get these exercises where someone would clap like two bars of, of a rhythm, right. you know, like, and I, for some reason would always be a little bit off on those. I don't know, you know, what that says about where my musical skills lie, but yeah, that was always more challenging. I kind of feel the same thing. Sometimes it's like, okay, was that a 16th note or a triplet? You know, like I always feel with rhythm, like I have a gut instinct and it's slightly wrong most of the time, (laughs) you know? Yeah, maybe there's some more nuances there. Yeah, you catch the big accents and then everything else is just kind of like, yeah, there was something there. (laughs) Yeah. 
you know what? Here, we're going to introduce the show right now. My we're goodness. 20, I know, it's so early. This is everybody, Late Night with Brian Wecht. My name is Brian Wecht. Over here, across from me, we have Leighton Gray. Wow, that is what my name is. Mystery yes. guest, would you care to introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Andrew Huang and I uh, make a lot of stuff. It's all generally pretty musical stuff, but uh, yeah, mm-hmm. making music. I'm making videos about music. I've just recently started making tools that other people can use to make their own music, like an app and some hardware. And uh, yeah. I have an online course as well, all about how to make music, which I guess falls somewhere between a tool and a video and music itself. That's me. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you again for being here. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. And you're you're sitting in probably the coolest set oh, I love the vibe. Or, yeah. or backdrop for anybody we've had on the show. Oh, not thanks. To, yeah. Not to dunk on our other guests. <laughs> <laughs> My studio has been a long time in the works, but I mean, yeah, I have this uh, music gear passion. And, you know, once I started reviewing gear on YouTube and those videos got big, all of a sudden everyone wanted to send me cool music gear. So I was like, bring it on. But it's funny, I, I kind of get like two very opposite reactions. And one is like, what a cool studio. And the other is like, everything is white. Are you a serial killer? <laughs> Everybody falls in one of those two camps. It's about a unified aesthetic. Yeah. Yes, I'm like, right. it's an art gallery, please. <laughs> yeah. And your jacket matches. Also, where is that jacket from? Because that looks so oh, cozy. You know what? This is funny because this is another thing where I get that kind of polar response, but you haven't even seen, it's a very long jacket. It goes down like, oh Oh my God. For the listeners, actually, the last person who complimented me on this sweater said, it's like someone put a normal hoodie in Photoshop and just like dragged the (laughs) bottom of it down. Cause it's like a a pretty regular old white hoodie, except it just goes down a little past my knee and it's uh, very cozy. I bought it in a store in LA in Abbott Kinney, and I okay. think they closed during the pandemic, but they're still online. It's like one of those. Mm, okay. I'll find out for you though and send wow, you a thank link you. later awesome. or something. Yeah. I mean, you're looking pretty cozy too right now. Oh yeah. I got my mycology enthusiast sweater. What? Wait, 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 okay. wait, 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 wait. It's very pixelated for me and I just can tell that yeah. same. it's a great sweater, even though I have no idea what's on it. Are there mushrooms on? Oh yeah. That's yeah, mushrooms. Yeah, mushrooms. There they are. Whoa. So how into mushrooms are you? Uh... I think that they are aesthetically cool. I didn't buy this as like a, (laughs) I love shrooms, man. (laughs) Yeah. I got to recommend a book that I uh, read a while ago. And now the title is escaping me, but the um, author's name is Cosmo Sheldrake. Or wait, is it Merlin Sheldrake? There are these two Sheldrake brothers. Either way. One is a sick musician. One is a great mycologist and author. Mm. Both have amazingly cool names. But yeah, there's this book that he wrote about mushrooms and like mushroom networks and how basically the entire environment depends upon mushrooms and their communication Mm -hmm. and like, oh, it's mind blowing and will totally change your perspective on- What's the name of the book? Entangled Life, I wanna say. Entangled Life. Yes. Also, it's kind of a thing in the new, not new, well, newish Star Trek, Star Trek Discovery. They travel along the mycelial network. Oh, yeah. It's like the new version of subspace or whatever. There's a whole like fungal undercurrent to travel in in, in Star Trek Discovery. Meaning like Hmm. there's some kind of invisible 
mushrooms in space that allow for travel. <laughs> you know what? Yes, that's 100% accurate. Yes. Nice. Which is wow. a bold choice and very Star Trekky. <laughs> but yeah, they travel in this kind of a mushroom dimension a little bit. I love that. As a big horror person, I love the level of integration that fungi have gotten into the horror genre, like a variety of like zombie things that involve like cordyceps funguses like The Last of Us. There's a really great book by Jenny. I don't know how to say her last name, but the book's called Paradise Rot. It's like a really gay mushroom cosmic horror thing. And it's awesome. Brian, were you and I talking about another cool mushroom guy? Oh, yes. So I was going to ask, no, not to put you on the spot, Andrew, but do you know which 20th century composer was obsessed with mushrooms? I don't think I do. John Cage was a very devout mycologist. And there's some interviews with him where he's like, actually, I really just want to talk about mushrooms this whole time. (laughs) God, I wish I could remember this quote. There was something where he like would enter mushroom contests and he was just like obsessed with mushrooms his whole life. That's so cool. Yeah, I do recall now just hearing a bit about that. I did read one really great book about John Cage. But yeah, I mean, it doesn't really come to the forefront much because everyone just wants to talk about like 433 and yeah, yeah. uh, what was the piece that he did on TV where he used like the water and the water walk, I guess. I think that sounds right. And then all the aleatoric stuff and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe he didn't innovate very much in the mushroom world. (laughs) I think it's hard when they're doing a pretty good job kind of by themselves. Yeah. What's your take on, on John Cage? Into it, not into it? Like, don't know much. Into it in terms of like, I just think he broke so many things open to allow for people to just explore certain aspects of music more freely. I think that's really cool. Some of the like chance-based pieces, you don't really know what you're going to get. And he had this wonderful attitude of like being so accepting about it all. Whereas I think I'm a pretty open listener, but there are for sure times where I'll hear a a version of a performance of one of his pieces and just be like, this doesn't sound good. Same. At the same time, like some of them are amazing. Like if you've got an orchestra and they're like drawing a sequence of cards or whatever, and they have to, at different moments, play these completely different things and none of it is pre-planned, but you end up with these gestures that happen and sometimes they're incredible and you're like, what is going on? But I guess by nature, you know, it's chance, it's hit or miss. And so I'm not opposed to saying like, this one wasn't for me, but conceptually love it. (laughs) 100% my reaction as well. I almost never, in fact, not in recent memory, I've been like, I really want to go hear that John Cage piece. (laughs) Yeah. You know, when I was like a teenager, you know, around New York, I would go in and see Cage performances and they were always cool. Oh my God. What is the name of the woman... Margaret Ling Tan, maybe? I'm sure I'm getting that name wrong. There was one person in particular who was like a big cage performer, and I got to see her do a bunch of stuff, you know, 25 or whatever it is, years ago. And that was always cool because, A, audience watching at a John Cage event is fucking (laughs) awesome because it's a bunch of music weirdos, which is just the best. And also, like you said, you never quite know what you're going to get. So everyone's like, wait, what? What's happening next? I think I actually went to see the opera version of Four Minutes and 33 Seconds. Oh, that sounds interesting. (laughs) Which where, yeah, a hundred people stood on a stage in silence for, you know, four and a half minutes (laughs) in Central Park. 
I'm imagining if there was like a fully, you know, operatic vocal version of some of those aleatoric pieces, that could be really interesting. Yeah, totally. Just with with how emotive and also, you know, relatable it is to be using your voice in such weird ways. Right. This whole topic reminds me of this um, poet that I discovered, Christian Boak, I want to say is his name. There was someone who came into a school lecture that I was in and they did a performance of one of this poet's pieces. Mm-hmm. It was not chance-based at all. It was, it was fully written out, a very long sound poem. And so this guy oh, wow. very expressively and angrily is just like spitting syllables out. It really just <laughs> sounded like, <laughs> like gibberish. Oh, that's so great, yeah. But it was completely pre-written. And it was interesting hearing him talk about it after because he would rehearse these. He would feel really bad if he messed up one syllable. Like he was very dedicated to this Mm. kind of performance. And it was almost like the flip side of a John Cage type thing of being so dedicated to something where no one in the audience would be able to tell the difference. (laughs) Right, right, right. (laughs) I love that. So my first question is always notation with that stuff, right? It's like with something like that, how do you notate exactly what you want that poem to be and sound like? Yeah. Because even just the letters, people have different accents. It's true. And I think when I saw it written out, it was just like any other poem. You know, it was just like letters on a page. I don't think there was any kind of dynamic direction or any kind of like musical notation. Yeah, that would be, I guess the way to ensure it would be to write it out in IPA and just say, here are the sounds, you know, these are pan-linguistic, you can write it in, you know, phonetically, but if you're just going to write it in kind of Latin characters, you kind of get what you get, I guess. Yeah, and I'd be interested to know how the, you know, original author felt about various performances. Yeah. Yeah. It's one thing when you've written something that maybe is like characterful or a narrative and seeing how somebody interprets that. But when it's something that feels like such a primal and guttural expression of emotion, like how much of that expression of emotion, how much of it is just like the rhythmic sound or a mixture of two. Right. That's really cool. Yeah. With the stuff you write, Andrew, do you ever have to write out sheet music or scores or anything? If I'm working with a a classical musician, that's like kind of the only moment where I still will use traditional notation just happens to be the fastest way to communicate certain right. things. But I feel like, you know, the occasional like chord chart can be yeah, handy. Same. But so much of the time, I feel like now you're just in the studio with someone and you're just talking and there are all these little shorthands or you just invent something in the moment that, that communicates right. an idea. And that's great. And actually the best moments are when it almost feels telepathic. And I'm sure yes. you've had these kinds of experiences, right? Where you're both working on a thing and you just know the next thing that needs to happen and, and you both arrive there together. That's the coolest thing. Absolutely. Yeah, that is the best. The notation, it reflects it, but it kind of takes away from it. It's also the world's biggest pain in the ass to oh, yeah. do that stuff well. <laughs> Not only to do it accurately, but then to make it look good. Like, I'm sure oh, yeah. you've like, wrestled with enough notation software that it's like, how is it 2022? And this is still a fucking issue. Yeah. It's not easy to do no matter how you do it. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that's why, you know, if you can find the right musicians to work with, there's always a better way. Like even if someone's good enough and you can just hum something to them and like work through it with them playing it a few times, that's just going to be so much better than like writing it out on a paper and marking all these crescendos and, and all this kind of stuff and communicating it orally is so much better. 
I find this a lot. Torp is a good example. We work with them because I like the way they do things. And so I would much rather send them a skeleton of something and be like, here's the melody and the chords and the general vibe. You know, I'm not a bass player. Like, Commander Meowch, make this rad because you're oh, going to yeah. play it better than I could. And if I tried to notate what I'm thinking, it would be bad like compared to what you can come up with. That's totally the thing too. And I wonder actually now, I have never thought about this before, but for a lot of classically trained musicians, improvisation and even composition are not really part of their worlds. You know, they've just learned to play 200 year old pieces and that's kind of like the epitome of the thing. And that's unfortunate because I think there's a lot more to music, but also, you know, maybe that is what has set up this, dichotomy or whatever of of the way we deal with one type of musician versus another. Like if there was a person totally. who was phenomenal on any of these traditional instruments and could do the very off the cuff by ear sort of stuff, we wouldn't be thinking about notation at all. But we just often do run into that situation where it's like, well, this is the only way that I really can communicate these ideas effectively to you, the the player. That's right. I don't work with classical musicians too much. And when we do, obviously, there's like a self-selection thing going on there too, where we're picking the people that will work with the kind of stuff we want to work with. But I've noticed with a few classical musicians, if you ask them to start improvising, they're like, "Uh, they can do it, but many of them don't feel very comfortable. Although I think that's less true in the new music scene where Mm. a lot of pieces written now involve a, you know, potentially a big improvisatory element. Yeah, that's true. But yeah, I mean, I was primarily classically trained from um, the beginning of my musical journey and it was tremendously valuable. But then at the same time, as I kind of opened up to a lot of other approaches, I think it all just compounded to be something much more. Yeah, totally. In school, did you study production stuff or are you pretty much all self-taught? There was one class that was sort of, I don't even remember what it was called. It was like some kind of computer music sort of thing. (laughs) Yeah, I did the same thing. Yeah, I'm 38 now. So I was going to school like just when these types of things were starting to appear, you know, programs for production. But um, yeah, mostly self-taught on the side of writing, recording, producing. And then uh, as far as like playing instruments, I have basically formal piano training and and music theory with the uh, Royal Conservatory. (laughs) Is that like sanctioned by the queen or something? Or did they just call themselves royal to be fancy? I always wonder about, it seems like in any Commonwealth country, you can slap royal on pretty much any, it's like Webster's for dictionaries where it's like, okay, you know, we're going to throw this on and make it sound legit. I've always wondered this where you think the monarch, whoever it is at the time, is maybe too busy to approve all these different things. Yeah. One thing I do know about things being named royal is I once did a commission for the Royal Winnipeg Ballet. Oh, cool. And I learned that they got to be royal after they were visited by the queen decades ago. And I don't know if it was like an official thing where she bestowed it on them or if it was just like, well, anything the queen touches now is royal. It's like, technically we are now royal. We're just going (laughs) to run with it. We already got it printed on the business card, so. If I had that power, I would use it indiscriminately to declare everything I ran into royal. Go to the grocery store, that mango is royal. (laughs) This is my royal couch. This guy over here, that's Royal Dave now. (laughs) (laughs) Is that a banjo in the background, Andrew? It is. 
I'm not great on banjo, but I love banjo. It's so cool. There's no other instrument that has that kind of like set up with the resonator and the yep. weirdly one string being super high and shorter <laughs> yes. than the rest of them. Like, yeah, it's actually bizarre, but yeah, it's super cool. I mean, I got into country music through some friends a while ago when they showed me some of the older, deeper cuts that... I generally think are better than a lot of new country. But also, Sufjan Stevens was probably the big inspiration for me to like do some banjoing myself because he just found a wonderful new, like soft way to use it that I felt like, I don't know if he was the first person to do it, but to to use it in his little, you know, fragile indie folk songs was just like a, I'm sure for many people, a turning point. Yeah. God, yeah. I love some Sufjan. Yeah. Yeah. What always surprised me about banjos is how fucking loud they are. Like, oh, yeah. they're so loud. <laughs> I get why, you know, people were playing this without any amplification for however many hundred years or whatever. What I've been wanting to get is a uh, banjo which is like the ukulele-sized banjo. Not okay. sure if it's tuned like a banjo or like a uke, but my brother yeah. had one for a bit in a band he was in. I mean, it looked cool, and it yeah, was... That- Still powerful, but not like quite the banjo twang. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever played a dulcimer? Yeah, I think I've like grabbed one in a music shop before, but yeah, not really. I, when I was younger, did this like uh, yearly summer camp in Brasstown, North Carolina, which is a town that's like literally a a possum-themed gas station, a yarn shop, and a food store called Vital Vittles. Oh, yes. You've (laughs) talked about this on the show. Yes. Yeah. But at Clay's Corner, the gas station themed after possums, they would do Friday nights, like a bunch of old men would come in with their banjos and their dulcimers and just go to fucking town on them. And it was the coolest thing when you're in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) And it's a bunch of old men who have been playing the banjo for like 50 years. That rules. Yeah. Hearing someone shred on the banjo is incredible. Yeah. I just found a TikTok where it's just harpeggi videos and the person shreds on harpeggi in a way that I was like, oh my, I didn't know anyone could play this instrument so well. I've never laid hands on one and it really fascinates me because it seems like people are barely touching it and like articulating these notes so beautifully. And I'm like, what is the action on these strings? How do you interact with this so smoothly? It almost, it seems like it's an app or something. (laughs) Done. Like, are you just using a giant wooden iPad? (laughs) That's exactly what it looks like. Uh, Layden, do you know what this instrument is? No. How do I spell that? It's harp, E-J-J-I, I I think. I did play one recently because I was in Carlsbad, which is like a couple hours south of L.A., and that's where NAM headquarters is. So it turns out the big NAM convention is kind of whatever, not the coolest place in the world. But the NAM headquarters has a museum that anyone can go to. It's called the Museum of Making Music. And it turns out it's literally some exhibits, but mostly just a bunch of instruments laying around that anyone can pick up and play. Oh, that's the best. It's the best. And so they had a harp guitar going on, which I'd never even heard of before. Uh, a bunch of wild string instruments and a harpeggi, an instrument I had never heard of up until like three months ago. And I was like, what the fuck is this thing? And, you know, I, I played it. My daughter played a little bit. And then I was looking into it. I just saw a video yesterday of someone playing Spain by Chick Corea on this thing mm. and like absolutely demolishing it. You know, it's a two-handed thing and they're sliding around on it. It was fucking insane. Yeah. Well, so what did it feel like to play? For people who don't know, it's it's strings stretched over kind of like a little fretboard, but there's 
black and white key looking symbols on it. And so it felt like finger tapping on a guitar pretty much, except you could hit it and mute it or bonk and let it resonate. But because of the way it's set up, I mean, you're right in front of the thing. It's not to the side like a guitar. It's a lot easier to slide along the strings. So you can do all these kind of like glissando type things. I didn't quite grok how it was laid out. It's not linear like a piano or quite, you know, it has how many, it's like 20 strings or something, maybe more. I didn't quite spend the time with it to like really get it, but I was like, what a cool instrument. And then literally yesterday I discovered this Harpeggi TikTok account, which is the only time the For You page has ever recommended anything to me where I was like, oh shit, nice. <laughs> you know, My exact interests. Yes, yes, that's right. A weird instrument and someone playing it really well. Amazing. I need to get one. That's a video, honestly. And great for a like almost two-year-old too to mess around. Oh, on. I bet. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I forget that now if I buy a weird instrument, it pays for itself and I really should (laughs) just like (laughs) get the cool thing. Okay. I mean, they're in the like three to $4,000 range. It looks like not cheap. Aside from this harpeggi, are there other like really out there instruments that you want to try, but haven't been able to try or get access to? I saw a, liquid filled guitar body. Oh shit. Perfectly normal guitar, except it's entirely filled with like blue. I don't know. It looks like antifreeze. And uh, (laughs) apparently it's very heavy. It's completely impractical. It's like the waterbed of guitars, right? (laughs) Yeah. And it probably was popular in the eighties. I would love to try any of the like weird composers who built their own shit, like Mm. Harry Parch or Lou Harrison. So Parch, P-A-R-T-C-H. He built these like weird blobby things and was obsessed with a 43 note scale, you know, like dividing the octave into 43 things. And so really into microtonalities and stuff. And they look real Cronenbergian. There's like these weird organic shapes. I'd love to try playing some of those. And then Lou Harrison was an American, I think, composer who was obsessed with gamelan music and built them out of Uh. actual trash. Actually, I saw it was like his 90th birthday or something like that at the 92nd Street Y in New York. Maybe it was his 80th birthday at the 92nd Street Y, whatever. But they brought a bunch of his instruments and like played some of his pieces. And they're, you know, these really cool gamelan kind of inspired things. So those are the ones I like the the weird thing some person built in their basement. That's what I'd like to mess around with the most. But the more accessible answer is like a contrabass saxophone. Where it's just, you know, something that's an octave deeper than a berry and you have to like kind of deep throat the mouthpiece in order to play it. (laughs) Do you guys know um, Moon Hooch? No. That sounds familiar. They are a really cool band out of New York and it's like a drummer and two horn players, I think is the usual setup, although they seem to kind of like add people in. They've done all these weird things with their instruments, but one of their super basic mods is just shoving a huge traffic cone into the bell of their saxophone, which gives them an extra, I can't remember, several semitones. Yeah. And it just like extends the range. Yeah, we did a collab together a while ago. It was really fun having them over because they just don't care about messing around with their instruments. We poured water into this guy's ancient clarinet. (laughs) You know, it sounded exactly like what you'd think. It was was just gurgling. (laughs) Drowning clarinet. 
I'm looking at the thumbnail for the NPR Music Tiny Desk concert they did, and it's tied to the neck of the sax with caution tape, which is the coolest thing I've ever seen. So, I was going to ask Andrew with some of the like the the new like more engineering e Cody ear things that you're doing. How much of that is you like engineering it, and how much of that is you in a collaboration working with with other people? Like, you know, are you soldering shit and that sort of stuff? I pronounce it soldering. I'm so oh, sorry. Of course. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Canadian pronunciation. Yeah. Yeah. I've done a bit of soldering in my time, just like a handful of little DIY projects, and I'm not like the best at it. I mean, nothing that I've I mean, made same. it fall apart. It still works. Yeah. And it's really fun and, and it's a nice, <laughs> relaxing activity, which I have no more time for as a parent. But um, <laughs> yes. actually, it drops tomorrow. And whenever people hear this podcast, it will be out. I've dropped a synthesizer module. It's called Ghost and it's sort of like this multi-effect thing. And that is a collaboration with an established modular synth brand called Endorphins. And I have a couple more things like that in the works, as well as a plug-in in the works with Baby Audio, which is a great they make some of the best uh, sounding stuff, in my opinion. So I'm really excited I got to work with them. But yeah, just starting to collab uh, on these kinds of things where like, I feel like I have some interesting ideas for music tools. And I'm not going to be the best person to fully bring them to life. But, you know, yeah, there's yeah. a lot of great people I'm in touch with that uh, are helping make that happen. And it's it's very fun. Have you put out like producer kits on Splice and stuff like that? I do have, uh, I think, two sample packs on Splice. Yeah. And yeah. I do more of them just on my own because it's uh, it's just easier and quicker, but it's nice to, to be on the platforms as well. And just generally trying to give people tools of all different kinds, like there are free ones and cheap ones and expensive ones and digital ones and now physical ones and just interested in all of it. Yeah, that's the most, you know, fun part about making music today. And also the most daunting There's just so many options. Oh yeah, the access is awesome. The access is incredible for relatively cheap. You can do really amazing shit. And it's just so fun to see like teenagers and stuff be like, you know, I wrote and recorded and produced my whole album. And yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it sounds better than anything that you worked on yourself for like two years. One <laughs> and they're like, here's 100%. what I made last week. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> 15-year-olds are regularly schooling me on SoundCloud. <laughs> yeah, totally. And it's the best. I love that feeling of like, you know, this is just some kid in their bedroom or whatever doing stuff. And it's just cool, you know? Yeah. Yeah, Andrew, that's something that I really, really respect about your work and find really impressive of how accessible and interesting and open you make so yes. many of these tools and advice for anybody. Anybody can pick something up. And I think it's just really inspirational and cool. I appreciate that. That's like my whole thing is just how do we make it, you know, really understandable for anybody? Because I guess when I was growing up and, you know, this was a much different time, like primitive or no internet even, depending on exactly when in my childhood we want to look at. But yeah, I'm sure you felt the same way. You're a kid and you hear all these magical records and you're like, how does any of this actually happen? Yep. And like you just have to try a bunch of stuff and you're doing something in a suboptimal way for 10 years because you just don't know just that don't there know. is a better sounding or a faster way or whatever. And you can't look up how to do it either. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so my kind of thing as I was, you know, in my teens learning about some of this stuff was just like, 
I want to make this just super available as much as I can for people because uh, I love it so much. And I was just the kind of person who always wanted to find that new production trick or whatever. I mean, even today, I still go on these forums almost every day and kind of like get a bit of reading and see if someone is doing something I've never thought of before. And I feel like, you know, all of these things, big or small, are just these tools that anybody can have. You know, a lot of the things aren't things you have to buy. It's just like an idea. It's an approach that you could take. And I think there's nothing more gratifying than being able to open that door for somebody. So yeah, loving doing that. It's the best feeling when you're recording, when you're like, wait, how did that happen? What? What did I put together to make that happen? We have no idea. And you have to take a step back and be like, okay, I guess I'm, you know, accidentally fed that through this and blah, 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 you know, that sort of stuff. It reminds me of a, I wish I could remember who this quote is by. I've said that several times now during this episode, uh, where someone said, you know, the thing that drives most science is not hey, I figured it out, but it's, huh, that's weird. (laughs) Which is exactly the right attitude, I think, which is like, huh, maybe let me scratch that itch a little more and see what pops out of it because something feels odd or interesting. Totally, yeah, yeah. I mean, the best stuff generally has happened for me when I'm just exploring and, uh, you know, I didn't really plan anything beyond maybe the parameters of, a session, but you can't just like sit there and think of something really cool <laughs> that's going to yeah. match what happens when you're actually just, you know, playing and like trying stuff out and, and making discoveries. Right. There's such a lack of like opportunities to quote unquote play as an adult. Like you're a kid and you play a lot and then you become an adult and you no longer have that outlet unless you intentionally seek it out. And another thing that's really cool about your stuff is all of your found sound videos and tracks just truly feel like watching somebody play in a way that's very like joyful. Yes. You can feel the discovery that you are going through as you're finding sounds. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a big thing about me is like, I have to be having fun as much as possible. Yeah, yeah. And that to work great for YouTube, but like, I guess it's hard for me to take a lot of things too seriously. And yeah, I mean, like, I just try to do what I think is right for me and and be objective, I guess, about what I feel about the the type of work that I'm doing, which is kind of an abstract way of saying like, (laughs) you know, the music industry has a lot of preconceived notions about like how you should release something or what music should sound like or all these kinds of things. And I feel like at some point I just kind of only engaged with what really felt right for me Mm -hmm. and then ended up also exploring all these weird things like making music out of light bulbs and that was just like really neat to me and so I did a bunch of those things and then it you know kind of caught on and became a bit of a calling card but yeah I have had some opportunities to work with some like pop artists and stuff like that and you know occasionally there's like a fun session that comes out of that but I also just usually don't like doing that and so I don't do it. <laughs> like yeah, yeah. the way that the really commercial side of the industry works, just, it feels kind of gross sometimes. Yeah. And I just don't want to work on something where it's like 30 revisions with seven people and it never comes out where I'm like, oh, yes. but I could have just like made a song with balloons that <laughs> afternoon and released yeah. it. And, you know, 200,000 people would have a great time watching it. 
and I'd have a, a great time too. And then I'd move on to the next fun project the next day. Yeah. I don't know if you feel the same way. I do not fucking understand the music business. I understand like maybe this much of it. And then there's so much legal bullshit, like in terms of all the being on a label and what does that mean? And this type of royalty and that type of royalty where, you know, I've been an indie artist my whole career and, you know, most of that being on YouTube, et cetera, I haven't needed to figure a lot of it out. And just the idea of engaging with that side of it is kind of innately terrifying to me. I imagine you've had to do more of it than I have, but it's like every time something like starts moving towards that direction, I'm like, well, I, I don't fucking know. And I feel like the moment I understand all the legal issues, some part of me will die. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel the same way. I just like engage with it just the bare minimum yes. that I need to, to kind of like get the project going. But um, yeah, I think, you know, it's just like a world that you don't really need to engage with anymore, I don't think. I mean, maybe for like a 1% of the industry. Sign up for a royalty, you know, a publishing organization or whatever, and then kind of do it. I have a friend who worked with like a big name producer. Like most people wouldn't know who this person is, but they definitely have heard like 30 songs that he has worked on for major, major artists who are like the most famous people in the world right now. And so my friend got sampled by this guy a couple times and it seemed like fully above board and everything. You know, he reached out, he asked to clear it. He's like, you want to use these sections for this and this. And then my friend was just hanging out with him the other week and he's like, yeah, I haven't been paid for like any of that. Oh, no. And I don't know what I'm supposed to be paid. And I'm like, you did this three, four years ago. Like you absolutely have gone through enough whatever cycles that you should have been seeing some royalties. And so on the one hand, it's like, how is it so convoluted that something that wasn't even a shady situation is like, this guy can't yes. figure out his money. But also it's such an artist thing too, for you to be like, uh, maybe I'll never ask for this money because <laughs> that feels bad. And I'm a sensitive totally. soul. You know what I mean? So we're like yep. double fucked for just like not being able to like be bold about business stuff because that's the type of people artists often are. And yes, then also yeah. the, the industry itself is just so much more, you know, twisty turny. Yeah. Two minutes before we started recording, I sent an email, which was like, Hey, I did this thing, you know, kind of on spec. Am I going to get paid question mark and if so how much and if so do i need to send you an invoice and maybe just tell me the amount and i'll send it or question mark you know it's yeah. like you know and i'm like i'm happy to if i don't get paid for it it's cool like not a huge deal but there were some hints yeah well and then you feel like a monster for asking to be paid for your services where like anytime yeah. i turn in an invoice it's like i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm a piece of shit i know <laughs> I, yes yeah. totally you know i'm so sorry about this invoice. <laughs> oh my gosh me coming up with my little like tin cup like i'll yeah. take pennies <laughs> i was just talking to someone else a friend recently while we were on tour about as, as you go through life as an artist at some point and some people never have to make this decision, but, and maybe even framing it as a decision is bad. You start to wonder, are you more talent or management? And I feel, mm -hmm. you know, small, you know, indie artists kind of have to be both by their very nature. But this is a real tension I've been feeling in my own career recently because I don't want to be management, but also 
I feel like if I'm not at least a little management, things are going to fall off a cliff, you know? For sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and yet I know some people who are indie artists who are just 99% talent and just trust a bunch of other people to run their shit. And I don't have that level of faith in other humans where, <laughs> you know, I would just be like, yeah, you just deal with everything. No big deal. Yeah. How much of that is your personality, Brian? <laughs> well, I, I famously don't have a personality, of course, but uh, right. like a lot of it, of course, is me being, you know, a kind of science minded list maker type of person. Would you describe yourself as type A? I don't know exactly what that means. So, which maybe is exactly what a type A person would say. <laughs> so it's interesting to me, like with the science side of you, I could see this going in two ways. I could see that overlapping a lot with kind of like organization and thinking things through and that kind of side of the managerial experience. Or I could see it as being like a part of your creative side where you're interested in exploring and discovering and experimenting, right? You totally nailed it. It is exactly both. You know, and you do have some scientists who are like talent, who are like, I'm just going to think about like the universe or whatever. (laughs) So in my field, theoretical physics, there were some older people who, this doesn't really happen anymore since now that generation has died, but there are probably still a few people left who would handwrite papers and then hand them to someone else to type. And, you know, that's how it used to work in the, probably up until the 90s, maybe even, where there were like, people had secretaries that they would hand papers to and they would just write shit out. Some people are definitely that like kind of spacey talent sort of vibe, but I always needed to, I needed to be writing papers, which involves a lot of project management. And as I got older, I was the head scientist on these papers. So it's like, okay, here's what we have to do. You're doing that. I'm doing that. We're all going to check each other's work. Let's have the draft ready by this, blah, 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 you know, that sort of thing. So absolutely, you know, with like, hey, let's make an album. Okay, well, we need to schedule time to write and then do all the blah, 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 you know, all the steps towards releasing it. How are we putting it out? You know, what are the videos, blah, blah, blah. But just like as a scientist, as you said, there's a lot of time you need just to like throw ideas against the wall and see what sticks and trust that probably 99% of them are going to be stuff that you never look at again or just don't like or file away for a while. So I think it's exactly the dichotomy that you say. And yet, you know, you kind of need to do both. Yeah. I'm realizing I'm, I'm lucky in some ways because, well, number one, my wife is a super like strategy minded, organized, like kind of a business genius. And when my stuff started going well enough, she was like, well, you get to work from home how about I quit my job and do all the things you don't want to do slash are bad at? Mm-hmm. So she's been helping me out for the past, oh, how long has it been now? Like eight years maybe, oh, which wow. has been nice. great for both of us. But also I think that I am probably like more business-minded than the average musician out there. And I mm-hmm. say this having talked with and worked with so many musicians and just seeing yes. like how chaotic it can get. Oh, yeah we all need to find the balance that's right for us. And I, you know, maybe I'm working with all the people who are just like super, super hundred percent talent. And that's great. I would just say if this helps anybody that's listening, like there's sort of an attitude of like, if you're an artist, you shouldn't care about the business. Like you should be a hundred percent focused on your art and give it your all and and everything. And I feel like that's a little bit of a myth I agree. in that, like, if I'm interested in business, that will help my art. 
and it's the part of me too. I'm not a 100%, you know, art being or something like that. And also business can be an interest just like fashion can be, or just like politics can be, or just like anime can be. And plenty of my musician friends are into fashion or politics or anime and make time for that. So I'm accepting of the part of myself that is a little bit more businessy. And I'm like, yeah, that doesn't make me less of an artist. It's also one of the things I also do. Yeah, it's, it seems like it makes you even more effective as an artist. And also, I mean, we haven't even touched in this episode, like how you put so much effort into the video and visual and editing part, especially with some of these found sound things in a way that is super impressive. Like how long have you been doing video production compared to how long have you been doing music? Video is definitely a whole additional interest of mine. And um, at some point when I, I don't know, as a teenager, I guess we got like a camcorder as a family. Like a VHS type. Oh yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. It was big and chunky. Yep. And yeah, I just make these little weird skit videos with my friends and had a lot of Same. fun with that. And then didn't touch video at all again for years and years. But when YouTube came around, it sort of reignited that interest because it removed a lot of the barriers that I'd normally associate with Everything about making it was a a headache, let alone like, where is it going to be shown? But with the the advent of a website where you can, anybody can just put stuff up there and anybody else can see it. Like, it seems so basic, but (laughs) I remember learning about that and I was like, this is a revolution. Totally. Yeah. So I just started making videos again and having fun with it. And, you know, with music, I'm very trained and with video, I'm absolutely just like, what did I read on the internet? And I'll try the different settings on my camera, I guess. Yeah. So, you know, approaching these different disciplines in a really different way has been fun for me. And it's sort of the same as that question about business is like, I feel very fortunate that video is also just a genuine passion of mine, something that I have a lot of fun with, because I know a lot of artists are like, oh, I really wish I could do more with my YouTube presence, but I just like hate making videos. And I'm over here like, oh, I you know, I have a great yeah. time when I make videos. So that's I love it. Know, a big advantage. I remember, and I was probably in my early 30s when this happened, uh, when I first found out about color correction and I was oh, like, yeah. whoa, what? You don't just have to take what they give you? <laughs> you know, I, I was blown away because I'd never ever focused on that side of things until I started making YouTube videos, even for the early days of Ninja Sex Party, we hired a director and an editor because I didn't know enough to do any of that stuff myself. But yeah, I was just like, oh my God, it's like, you can do all this stuff. And that was, of course, you know, now digital was a whole easy thing and you could use Premiere or whatever to, to do stuff. Oh, were you color grading in like some kind of analog domain? <laughs> I'll be honest with you. I have no idea exactly what that means, but uh, <laughs> no, we were doing everything digital. Well, look, if we want to go way back, I remember when I was 13 and I found out about editing and I was like, whoa, they don't just stop and start the camera. Amazing. (laughs) You know, that was like an earlier version of that. But I definitely did some like film projects in seventh grade where it was just like, okay, we, you know, click, film, stop. All right. Right. Click, film, stop, you know, everything in order, no actual editing. You could see people wandering on and off the quote unquote set. (laughs) I guess that was an early analog version of I had to like figure some, like turn the dial on the camera, kind of like you're saying sort of stuff. I don't even know what the process is, but I just imagine that when people were dealing with film, like, is there some kind of chemical process to 
you know, bring the colors out a bit more or something like that. <laughs> right. Some crazy intricate process. Well, I guess that's why you see color by Technicolor, right? Mm. Even all these movies, it's like color by company. And you know, if you look at these, like, I don't know, like Spartacus style things from the 60s, there's this very bright kind of vivid feel of those movies, which then depending on, you know, what you're watching and when you're watching it, by the time you get to the mid seventies, things start to feel a lot grayer and stuff. So I, I wonder if that's because they were using a different technology or different company, different way of doing things. Obviously the design is a whole element of that too. It's something I'm fascinated by. and know literally nothing about. <laughs> All right, let's move on to our first segment. This is our pop culture recommendation segment. You get to talk about a book, a movie, a video game, anything like that. The segment is called What's Poppin', and it does have a theme song, which we insert in post, so you will not hear it here, although perhaps you have heard it in the past. Uh, mm-hmm. But we're going to put it in right here, right now. What's poppin'? What's poppin'? That was the What's Poppin' theme song. And this segment is the What's Poppin' segment. Flawless introduction, as ever. (laughs) I do have a recommendation that I am excited about. Yeah, do it. Because it is the very last book that I finished. It's called Ducks by Kate Beaton. Oh, she's the best. Bonus, she's Canadian. But also, yeah, she does the Hark Vagrant comic. And it just came out, I think, a month ago. I did the whole, like, pre-order it and it shows up in your mailbox on release day thing. And yeah, just just a beautifully told memoir of a segment of her life that she spent uh, working in the Alberta oil sands. It's funny and it's also like heartbreaking. And, you know, she wrestles through a variety of big issues and it's just fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I love her work. I've been purposely avoiding like too many details about it. Mm -hmm. Love what she does. And I'm excited to read that one too. Yeah. 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 There's such like a deep human quality to everything that she does. It resonates a lot with me. Yeah, same. When she started making comics after she had a baby, just like her grasp on both comedy and also just like that deeply human, she's the best. She would be like a dream guest for the show. I'd love to talk to her, yeah. Layden, what's popping? What is popping for me is Trixie Mattel's YouTube channel. Ah, nice. Yeah, I keep close tabs on certain Christian fundamentalist influencers because Mm -hmm. I find this new generation of very fundamentalist influencers very disturbing in the tactics they use and the groups that they target. I just find awful. But Mm -hmm. Trixie has done multiple videos in response to Girl Defined. Girl Defined is a deep hole. It's two Christian sisters who, if anybody's seen the how to do makeup in a God-honoring way video, that's them. But Trixie made a response to that video, and they recently put out a video about drag queens, which is about as whack as you would expect. And Trixie watched it and gave commentary and made a lot of like amazing points and super dunked on them, and it was great. And then that turned into me watching like everything on Trixie's channel. She's so funny and beautiful. Funny, yes. Kills me. I haven't heard of her before. I definitely need to check her out. Yeah. I love how much she loves makeup. And it's such a joy to watch her do her makeup and talk about the process. And also just like she knows drugstore makeup. And I 
love that. Like that it's so accessible and she'll go through like, here's what's shit, here's what's really good and drugstore makeup, the best. Love it. And there's like a what's in my bag video where she pulls out her Nintendo Switch and mentions that she's playing this game called Dream Daddy. Is there really? Yes. Oh, wow. I know. That's the kind of thing that just like blows my mind. So if you don't know, Andrew, that's the game that Layton co-wrote. Yeah. Oh, sick. What? So, so surreal. Yeah. She was on uh, an episode of Lost Culturistas last year or so. Lost Culturistas, oh. one of my all-time favorite podcasts, Matt Rogers and Bo and Yang, and was just awesome and hilarious and wonderful, as pretty much all of their guests are. But yeah, so funny. Such a funny person. Oh, yeah. You got to get her on the show, too. I'd love to. Are you kidding? I would really love that. I would be so intimidated, but yes, that yes. would be a dream. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's what's popping for me. Brian, what's popping? What's popping for me is also a book. You know, normally, Leighton, you're the true crime person here, but I have read a true crime book recently. So while we were on tour, our first date was in Columbus, Ohio. And whenever I have some time in the city, find a cool bookstore, in Columbus, I found this place called the Book Loft at German Village. It's in an old house and has 30-odd rooms of books. And it was just a really cool, like, where does this staircase go kind of vibe. And I walked into a room, and right there in front of me was a book called Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, and the Secret History of the 60s. And it's from a couple of years ago. I think it's 2019 by a journalist named Tom O'Neill. And I don't really know anything about the Manson stuff. Like, it's never really appealed to me. Kind of upsetting to read about, of course. Oh, what? You don't love murder? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I recognize it happens. But typically, you know, I don't gravitate towards it. But, you know, I, I've always been curious, like, what is the deal with this? And this seemed like an interesting take. I did a quick bit of due diligence to make sure this person was not a total crackpot. And this wasn't some weird conspiracy theory book. It turns out the person is not a total crackpot. It is a weird conspiracy theory book, and it's fucking awesome. <laughs> and as he says many times in the book, it's like a 400-something page volume, 20 years of effort. His task was not to tell you what happened, but that the official story didn't. That's the kind of motto of the book. And, you know, as someone going into this with very little knowledge about what exactly happened, I didn't even know what the official story was. So I kind of learned that and then what his perspective on it was just as a historical document of that time and kind of the souring of, you know, summer of love type hippie culture. Very, very interesting. Also talks a lot about FBI, CIA and the kind of anti left wing subversive programs that they were doing, which I also didn't know much about. So just as a history book, it's interesting. But then as this guy's journey through, hey, you know, a magazine asked me to write a piece on Manson. Well, now it's 20 years later. And, <laughs> you know, he's deep in debt because this case has totally taken over his life. That is an element of the storytelling as well. Wow. Oh, that's fascinating. That's been sitting in my Kindle library for a really long time. I should... Do they mention the Beach Boys connection with Manson in the book? Extensively. Oh, yes. So they talk <laughs> okay. a lot about the Beach Boys, about Dennis Wilson, who was a, you know, they would hang out a lot. A lot of it takes place in LA where I live now. And so there's a lot of like, oh, okay, you know, there's like this stuff going on in LA. You know, well, one of his contentions is that Manson was a lot 
more a part of like the musician and kind of celebrity scene in LA. He would hang out with like Warren Beatty and famously Roman Polanski, who the less said about Roman Polanski, the better, uh, but like was part of that scene as well. So one of his contentions is that, you know, for all these people who are like, oh, I barely knew the guy. It's like, no, you hung out with him like all the time. Wow. That's wild. Apparently Manson co-wrote a B-side on a Beach Boys thing and then wasn't credited or something. I heard that too. Yeah. yeah. I'm a big Beach Boys fan, so I kind of have just that <laughs> angle into that yes. situation. I mean, also like the, you know, more distant like Beatles connection with the Helter Skelter graffiti and yeah. like. Right. So the Helter Skelter, that's a big, big point of this guy's book is that, you know, Helter Skelter, which was like the main prosecuting attorney's book that he wrote about mm -hmm. it. Vincent Bugliosi. Yes, exactly. That he said, you know, Manson was trying to start a race war and implicate the Black Panthers and all that stuff. He thinks that's complete bullshit. And, you know, basically says that this was kind of invented somewhat out of whole cloth. This guy toes right up to the line of like, whoa, like, are, are you, what are you thinking uh, in terms of conspiracy theory type stuff? But there are definitely hints that like, did bad actors come in and rearrange the crime scene to make it look like that sort of stuff? You know, whoa. It, it's, whoa. it's very interesting. You know, it seems pretty well-researched. Uh, he did his own research. But, like, you know, it is, if nothing else, regardless of whether I believe his claims, which I have no, you know, real basis of, I don't know anything about one way or the other, it's a cool history of the 60s, even if, you know, once he starts talking about MK Ultra, it gets a little bit out into space. Interesting. How much did you know about, like, Cointelpro and uh, MK Ultra? So, okay. Nothing. I am very interested to read this because I've done really extensive reading on the CIA and what they were doing at that time. They seem cool. There's Good bunch very of guys little I would put cool past stuff. them, you know? hundred <laughs> well, percent. And that, you know, so COINTELPRO was the FBI's anti-left wing thing. Chaos was the CIA's version of this. And then that's not even saying the MK Ultra, which was like the LSD type experiments. I think CIA oh, right, right. was doing. Yeah. Turns out, uh, John Edgar Hoover, J. Sorry, J. Edgar Hoover didn't like the left wing very much and did a lot of really bad shit, as many other people did. It's wild. Like, it's the kind of thing you could just talk about all day because every page has like a what the fuck is going on with that kind of moment. <laughs> uh, yeah. Brian, if you liked that, you should read. I think I popped it a couple of years ago on here, but Poisoner in Chief, which is like a biography of Sidney Gottlieb, who was like the oh, quote yes. unquote like chief poisoner. Yeah. He's talked about in the book a lot. Nuts. That's the hardest part. And this is partly why I shy away from crew, uh, crew crime. Wow. Uh, <laughs> crew crime, crime, baby. <laughs> crew crime is that. At some point, it's like, how many names do I need to fucking remember to get through <laughs> this book? Especially the Manson stuff where it seems like there's 500 people. Right. It would be so much more complicated than a fictional murder novel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's so much messier. Here's Tex Watson and here's Squeaky From. And, and Linda Kasabian and Susan Atkins. Like yeah. all the, yeah. Squeaky From, by the way, it's not even mentioned in this book. Have you read John Waters' Role Models? Because there's a chapter and oh, I no, don't I think it's to. Squeaky From, but he is friends with one of oh, the Manson yes. girls and does That's this right. really great chapter of like, how long are we willing to punish this person for this? And I yeah. thought that was a very interesting perspective. If you said the name, I would remember it. I don't think it's Linda Kasabian, but it might be. 
I don't know. I can't keep the 30 members of the Manson family straight. Yeah. But I remember he has publicly stood up. Yeah. Like you said. Yeah. Okay. Great. All right. Well, that's what's popping. Now it's time for our final segment, which will probably be a lot shorter, which is three parts gratitude exercise and one part petty grousing. It's called Peaches and Lemons. And the theme song goes here. Great, incredible, amazing, revolutionary, iconic. That was the theme song. Woo. We'll each start with a lemon, which is the thing that is a minor bummer, annoyance, grievance, what have you. I will go first. Great. Mild, this is gross warning for people at home, but my lemon is that feeling when you know you're going to vomit and you're doing like a will they, won't they with your own stomach. And you're just like sitting on the floor of the bathroom as your mouth fills with saliva. And you're like, come on, man. We know we're going to get there. Like, can we just, can Can we we just just? get this over with? It's true. It's almost worse than the act itself. Exactly. You're like, please let me vomit already. Instead of just like sitting there spitting. But that was me the other night. I straight up think it was just like a stress vomit. Oh, I don't know. I ate shrimp wontons for dinner. And so that was a fun thing to throw up. And that process stressed you out so much you vomited. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, very stressful for me to eat delicious dim sum. Yeah. But yeah, the worst. And then you're exhausted. And then immediately afterwards, you're like hungry. Like I hate vomiting more than most things. So that. Cool. Thanks, body. I hate it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Well, congratulations on your vomiting. All right, Andrew. I think just laundry in general (laughs) is my lemon right now. I feel like it's been bothering me a little extra lately, just that it's always there, that it seems like it's a lot more work than it should be to just have things that are clean and not wrinkled to wear. (laughs) Indeed. Especially with a kid. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the whole other dimension. Although it's nice to fold the little tiny clothes instead of your own. Isn't it the best? (laughs) Yeah. But um, I was actually looking into these uh, steaming machines, like these appliance, Uh like uh small bookshelf-sized steamers, which the reviews are kind of like hit and miss with them, but like, do I want to buy the one to two thousand dollar <laughs> steaming machine to take like five percent of the edge off of my laundry lemon? I don't. Anyway, yeah, they have like pretty good handheld steamers. Oh yeah, I have that. I do that, and I sometimes only steam the front of my clothes because I'm only going to be on video that day, and yeah. that's like. <laughs> Absolutely. I feel super life hacky and, you know. (laughs) Yeah, my life hack is these days you only need to dye the front of your hair as long as nobody sees (laughs) me from the back. It's fine. (laughs) It's great. Wow. The steaming still just takes longer than I feel like it should. Yep. Good lemon. Brian? My lemon is that I had tickets to go see a new production of Oklahoma this weekend at the Amundsen Theater here in Los Angeles. Apparently... New production, very bluegrassy, and I can no longer go due to a conflict. And I'm bummed, you know, classic musical, so many great songs, classic Rodgers and Hammerstein. I'm always interested when they take these things and update them. I'm especially interested because it seems to have a kind of a divided reaction where some people love it and some people hate it. And that's what I want to see. I talked to a friend who is also into musicals, whose opinion I trust. And she was like, it was rad. So probably I would have liked it, but I can no longer go. That's my lemon. Bummer. Have you seen it before or? 
not a professional production. My high school did it, you know, classic like high school musical like type thing now, but I've never seen a pro production of it. So mm-hmm. I would have liked to have seen that too. It's one of the like big classic ones I haven't seen. I only know the song. Yeah. I think even just peripherally, I kind of get that vibe of like the love hate. <laughs> yes, totally. A lot of those Rodgers and Hammersteins, there's so much great music from them, but they're all like, they're very dated, a lot of them. So, and some of them are weirdly racist a little bit. I would assume a modern production would deal with that. And, you know, it's like any artifact of its time. There's stuff that just doesn't hold up and you got to kind of think about how to deal with it. But I think people wrestling with those questions in modern productions of this stuff is always interesting and somewhat, you know, sometimes divisive. I'd like to see what they did. And I'm more interested in the arrangements of the music than any of the dramaturgy kind of stuff. So I'd like to hear how they rearrange the, you know, all this great music. Awesome. That was Lemons. We'll each do three peaches, which are nice little things or nice big things, whichever. I'll start. Number one, this weekend, I guess Aaron, Susie, Vernon, and I are continuing what now I hope is a yearly tradition of going to Not Scary Farm. I just love it. Prior to last year, I had never gone to uh, any sort of like Halloween maze thing, especially not as an adult who really loves horror stuff. They put on a great show. Like, I'm really excited to check out what the new maze is and do some of the ones that we did last year. It's just fun. That's probably like my one big Halloween thing I'm going to do and then nothing else other than sit here and, um, you know, hand 3D print and sand and paint my Pip-Boy that I have disassembled (laughs) for the stupid New Vegas costume I'm doing. (laughs) That looks rad. I don't know what I'm looking at, but I do know that it's rad. This is just like a spirit Halloween Pip-Boy that I bought that's for Fallout 4. And the other night I completely took it apart. And now I need to get a caliper so I can make measurements on this, but I'm going to print like a new, because I have a 3D printer, uh, I'm going to print a new faceplate for it that's a little bit more faithful to like the New Vegas style Pip-Boy. Anyway, whatever. Cool. How precise a caliper do you need? Millimeters? I am waiting on a digital caliper to get here. Oh, look at you. Wow. Yeah, yeah. But that's really exciting because then I can just go in Blender or, you know, Lychee Slicer and all the things that I use and just figure out the right thing. I'm excited to try it. On a 3D printer, what's like the minimal resolution you could get to if you wanted to do something crazy precise. I don't know off the top of my head, but you would be surprised because I have a resin 3D printer as opposed to like a PLA one, which is where it sort of like draws it with a filament. Mm -hmm. And this, it like is curing in layers. So I've printed a ton of like keycaps and stuff. So if you think about the size of a keycap, it's surprising. I think it'll be more than enough to do this. Anyway, I promised myself I wasn't going to talk about New Vegas this episode. So oops, <laughs> fucked up. Anyway, my second peach is that I've just been really enjoying going to the coffee shop near me really early in the morning and just getting some like writing and emails in. Sorry, what, what's your address again? <laughs> oh yeah, it's going off of our bit from the episode that you were dead for. Oh, I know. It's called a callback. I was going to say your address. So, you know, um, <laughs> <laughs> which I don't know if you got that from the edited version, but it was all of us going back and forth and saying each other's address. <laughs> yes, I, I, I figured. It was great. Anyway, my last one is that it's a little bit overcast today and pretty oh, no, happy yeah. about that. It rained a little yesterday, which is... I know. Do you thrive in those gray conditions? No. Oh, yeah. Even though it's my last name, I do not. <laughs> <laughs> 
I love it. I much prefer overcast to sunny, which is ironic considering living in LA. But when it's overcast here, it's it's honestly the best. You don't walk out and the sun starts just destroying your soul. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say that usually we don't get overcast. We just go straight to rain and mm. rain makes my bones hurt. Don't know what that is, yeah. but uh, I don't like rain, but I do enjoy an overcast. Yeah. Cool. Andrew, three peaches. My number one giant peach, which is also a very little peach, is of course my baby and all mm-hmm. the magic that happens every day. It's yep. the best. They're pretty fucking cute, aren't they? Oh, yeah. Like, I can't even start to talk about all the cool things that she does and how great it is. Although, okay, here's one very specific gratitude within the larger baby gratitude. The other day, I wasn't here for this. I was actually, um, I was writing an album in a day with my buddy Rob. I saw that you were doing that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Once a year, this is our, our fourth time doing it. We get together. It has to be on the 1st of October because that's the day we did the first one. Right. Anyway, we try and write and record an album in a full day. It's super fun. And right before I was about to write the final song of the day, Essa texted me and she said that Evelyn just said, I love you, mama, for the first time. Hell yeah. Which is amazing. And it was very articulate, apparently. Now she's starting to say it more to both of us, but it comes out very like, I love you. Yeah. You know, still super cute. So cute. And we feel it. But then, you know, that inspired this whole song, too, that now we have to be able to share with her or like remember that I love that wonderful little moment so that was a nice one I think about that all the time when I hear isn't it lovely by Stevie Wonder Mm. about like how nice to have this thing that you can be like I wrote this about you when you were born and it's a celebration of this amazing thing in my life yeah the one worry that I have is like so we have another baby on the way due in March oh congratulations thanks and It's super exciting, but I I have this weird fear that I'm sure is (laughs) probably going to be fine, but I wonder if many music-type parents can relate, which is um, I've written a bunch of songs for Evelyn, and I'm like, what if I don't write as many (laughs) for the next kid? Or, like, they're not as good or, like, Uh less inspired. Like, a genuine worry of mine. And now you're busier with two kids, so you don't have enough time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Dad, that one wasn't enough of a banger for me. (laughs) Yes. So I only have one kid, so I don't know. But I just assume everything I do is going to be used as ammunition against me at some point. Ooh. So, you know, just add that to the list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what you're saying is just just do less for your kids. Hmm. That's right. Cool, yeah. <laughs> Late night parenting tips, do less. Yes. Peach number two is I've just ordered a really interesting guitar. The brand is called Verso. It's a guy in Germany, Robin. He seems like a wonderful sweetheart. And he makes these guitars where the body is like a folded piece of metal, like a curved shape thing. And then the pickups are cased in wood and you can actually just pick them up and move them. They're like on magnets. And so you can explore like the tone of the guitar that way. And they're absolutely beautiful. They come in a lot of different colors. I chose a pink baritone guitar. That Mm -hmm. pink is very nice. Right? It pops. So it's going to be special in a lot of ways. Yeah, I reached out to him. He knew who I was. He gave me a really nice discount. And then also I just found out that someone in his queue dropped out. So he's like bumping me up the list. And I might have this guitar like a year earlier than I thought I would. So these are rad. Look at that. That's a peach for me. Yeah, yeah. What's your uh, third one? Honestly, the other thing that comes to mind is just another instrument that I think is going to be getting soon. But I mean, this is my world right now. I make music and I take care of my 
beautiful baby. There's this drum machine called Noon made by uh, this guy in New York whose brand name is Landscape. And another like wonderful perk of having the YouTube channel I have, I reached out to him and I was like, this thing looks so cool. And he's like, I will send you one. And of course, I'm just, I'm going to make a video about it. It's so beautiful. It's this like deep blue and gold drum machine, but you don't plug it in. You kind of like use other things that are electrical and send electricity to it. And it responds to that. It's a completely unique concept. And then the sounds that come out of it too are just super wild and kind of like noisy, kind of chirpy, but also you can get almost like 808 sounding things too. Anyway, that's on the way to me. I'm like crazy pumped about it. (laughs) That's awesome. Very neat. Brian. Yes. What's peachin'? Peach number one. It is also a kid thing. Audrey had the day off from school on Monday. I just got back from a month on the road on tour and I just got to spend the whole day with her, took her to the tar pits, took her to LACMA, the art museum. We went and had lunch. It's kind of stressful taking a child to an art museum. Like she walked up to a Mondrian and just like started like leaning on the wall next to it. And I was like, ah, no, no, but you'd be okay. Let's give, let's give the art some space. It amazes me that art is displayed that openly still. I mean, that canvas is right there. Yeah. And didn't the guy at the Rex Museum just walk up to the night watch, the, the Rembrandt thing and just like slash it a few years back. I can't remember exactly what it was, but yeah, there was a recent like defacement issue. Yeah. You know, Audrey's eight. She can handle herself, but you know, even at eight, they're not the most aware of their spatial positioning of their bodies. And the fact that, you know, we walked into the museum and I was like, so remember how much touching she's like, none. (laughs) Right. And then walking up next to this Mondrian and just like kind of leaning against the wall I was like, ah, and she goes, I can't even touch the wall. I was like, okay. She was one inch away from the painting. Anyway, 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 despite some like mild heart attack type moments, we had a great time and she is old enough now where I can take her to, I love taking her to art museums and being like, what looks good? What do you like here? What seems interesting to you? That's gotta be so fascinating to like, just see what, goes on in their little heads like when they respond to these things. Oh, man. Yep, because they have no context, right? Level playing field. It's all just (laughs) stuff in front of them. And everything a kid does is kind of abstract in a sense, but it's also very representational. And so, you know, I'm like, this is a a Rothko. I like Rothko a lot. They're big blobs of color. And they had a Kusama. And I was like, this is the person that does the infinity rooms. And this is, you know, one of her paintings. Like, you know, it's really fun. All right, that's peach one. Second peach is the process of deleting emails. Oh, I love it so much. Just to see a bunch of emails and you're just like, click, 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 delete, done. And, (laughs) you know, it's mostly not spam, but just like shit I don't need to worry about. It's never from an actual human being that I know. I would never delete one of those emails. I would merely let it sit in my inbox until it has (laughs) gone unresponded to for so long that then you file it. I heard a story of, this was just one of those like viral tweets or something like that, but someone was talking about how they watched their coworker come back from vacation, press select all and delete and just be (gasps) like, that's what it's going to be. And if it was important, it'll come back. Oh my God. Can you imagine having that confidence? (laughs) Chaos. No, never, (laughs) never. But yeah, I love waking up in the morning to an inbox with 30 emails and one of them is good. 
And it's just like, <laughs> that's the one I'll read. Final Peach is now being home from tour. It's just the process of eating reasonably and showering, which are two things which are harder to do on the road than at home. I had a bowl of fruit this morning and then took a shower and it was a revelation. Having a little more control over one's life than you do when you're on a tour bus with 10 people and you don't know where exactly you're going to wake up or what's going to be around you or where the shower is going to be. It's nice to have that control. And that is my final peach. Amazing. Well, that's our episode today. Andrew, what a total thrill and a pleasure to have you here today. And you're so generous with your time. This was super fun. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Oh, yeah. No, so happy we got to do this. Yes. And thank you for coming to Ninja Sex Party way back when. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That show was awesome. Oh, thanks. Yeah, next time we're we're in town, you can get backstage next time. I'm going to make that promise <laughs> wow. right now. Yeah, give me the password or <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you for for spending a couple hours with us. We are both genuine fans of what you do and Thanks it is so much. really exciting to talk to you. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Back at you. If people at home want to check out your stuff, where can they find you? Yeah, type Andrew Huang H U A N G into YouTube. That's probably the best way, but also Type that into Spotify. Type that into Twitter. That's where I'm at. Love it. (laughs) Beautiful. Well, folks at home, I hope you're doing well. Normally, I would try to shoehorn some sort of statement, but I just got a notification that the cowboy boots I ordered are downstairs. Look at you. Priorities. So can you give us a yeehaw to sign off? Gamers, yeehaw. Perfect. Bye. You both also have to say yeehaw. Uh. Uh, yeehaw. Yeehaw for me, too. (laughs) An an absolute yeehaw. (laughs) I'm more comfortable with howdies, honestly. Yeah, same. Yeah. (laughs) Well, everybody, by all means, uh, be rooting, be shooting, be tooting, however that fucking meme goes. (laughs) Yeehaw. Bye. Bye. Leighton Night is produced by Brian Wecht, Leighton Gray, and Jarek Centeno. Follow us on Twitter at Leighton Night, on Instagram at Leighton underscore Night, or email us at LeightonKnight at gmail.com. <laughs>